Hi, welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. Uh, today, I'm very excited to have this special episode that's going to be looking at the intersection of social media and politics, especially in light of the recent events at the Capitol building, the purveyance of fake news, and just more extreme political speech in general. And to help us dissect these issues, I'm so happy to, happy to be joined by uh, Dr. Joyjeet Paul, an associate professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, his research is primarily focused on issues that surround information and communications technology and development especially on accessible technology in the global south. But a lot of his more recent research over the past few years has been on the use of social media in mainstream politics, specifically looking at political brand building in India, really around the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, in addition to other politicians. Uh, on a personal note, I'm very excited for this episode because Dr. Paul used to be my old research advisor for four years while I was a student at Michigan. We did a lot of this cool research together, so... It's going to be a fun conversation. It's going to be a really serious conversation as well as we dissect these issues on, I guess, one of the biggest mediums and forms of communication in the present day. So, Dr. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. I've been listening to your podcast from the time it started. So it's an honor. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So I guess the first question, so we can sort of get some context around this issue, when we look at social media and politics, I mean, social media really became, at least Facebook and Twitter, really huge in like the mid 2000s and the late 2000s. And I guess the first politician we really saw use Twitter and other forms of social media to great effect was uh, Barack Obama, uh, President Barack Obama, who really used it in sort of this organizational way. Uh, could you sort of uh, tell us a bit more about that and perhaps sort of give us the primer on how social media use for, by politicians has evolved since President Obama first started using it in 2008? Sure. Uh, so I do think that uh, Howard Dean is actually a very important um, a precursor to social uh, to Barack Obama on social media. Uh, but you know, back then, we were using terms like Web 2.0, and Howard Dean was really able, uh, partly because he was going after a younger demographic in his uh, during his primaries to galvanize a lot of interest in his campaign. Of course, Barack Obama really upped the game uh, for a range of reasons. Not only was he using social media for very effective fundraising, but that there was a lot of thought put into the various ways in which Barack Obama would engage in social media, such as even the specifics of uh, photographs that he would post there and how one photograph versus another would for instance, garner more attention, more donations, and things like that. And uh, what Obama was able to do, again, in a similar vein to what Howard Dean did, was uh, capture a young demographic which fit very well into the kind of persona he was trying to project at that point uh, around the whole uh, hope branding of uh, being something that younger Americans could look forward to. And what happened with Obama was that the example that he set for capturing a certain demographic became very important for what politicians would immediately follow him. And what I mean by that is 
at the time Obama was on social media, it was still fairly new. There was a lot less affordances of what you could do on social media. And so the politicians who followed Obama on social media were the ones who were either seen as being at the vanguard of uh, pushing a certain kind of technocratic persona or were very specific about who they were trying to go after. And when I say that, I differentiate between one case where social media is just part of your brand building and another case where social media is part of how you actually um, expect to convert people on online. Now, this, of course, has changed dramatically to today where uh, the brand building piece of it is uh, obviously still there and very important, but the latter piece, which is the actual ability to move electorate on social media, is much stronger than it was when you had, you know, like a worldwide population of a hundred million people on social media. Now, if you look at even um, uh, countries around the world, uh, Latin America, a number of countries have social media penetration upwards of 90%. So it pretty much means that um, a very, very significant part of your uh, population is actually on social media. And so it makes sense for politicians to actually run the campaign there. Now, the difference also between what happened earlier and what happened now was if you think about the notion of mediatization, where on one hand, a politician behaves how the media wants them to behave versus on the other end of the spectrum, the media behaves the way the politician wants them to behave. So that end of the spectrum would be, say, for instance, North Korea, where you would expect that everything that comes out of uh, North Korean media would likely be sanctioned by the state. Uh, the other end of the spectrum was traditionally the United States, in which politicians tried to behave in the ways that mainstream media wanted them to behave as part of their branding. Now, this spectrum uh, has been completely altered by social media because the notion of mainstream media as a central driver of uh, political discourse has gone through a dramatic transformation, I'd say, especially uh, since about 2015, 2016, when you, you really see the dramatic increase in the penetration of social media, where politicians have realized that they can basically go off mainstream media as their main, or rather, I wouldn't say go off mainstream media, but I would say that go off engaging with mainstream media professionals and instead do most of their communication through social media in such a way that what they do on social media is newsworthy enough that the mainstream media has no choice but to cover it. And of course, um, the classic cases of this would be uh, Trump and um, and Narendra Modi are, the, are very talked about. But Hugo Chavez was actually a very important uh, early precursor in this as well, because Venezuelan media at the time was largely owned by people who were generally seen as antithetical to um, Chavez. And then Chavez, of course, went on social media and he had done other kinds of things on mainstream media as well. So politicians have taken this track that I'm going to go ahead and talk on Twitter or wherever it is and just assume that uh, mainstream media will cover me anyways. And research shows that this ends up being true. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Paul. This is this is very interesting, particularly when we look at 
uh, populists, right? Populists around the world have been embracing social media, and I think Twitter in particular is something we've seen. And so, uh, would you mind kind of digging into a bit more how populists differ in their usage of, of social media and brand building as opposed to other types of, of politicians? And I'm thinking of, uh, in particular, Trump, as you mentioned, and also Narendra Modi. Uh, so, actually, those are two different. Imp- imp- interesting examples because they're very, very different, actually, because uh, if you look at what uh, Trump says and does on on social media, as well as when he engages with mainstream media, it's very different from the way Narendra Modi presents himself on social media or behaves or rather uh, generally doesn't uh, interact with the mainstream media. Uh, so, First, a few general things about populism and social media. Like I said, Hugo Chavez was a very important early populist on social media. Then there's been Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey and um, Hun Sen um, in Cambodia. Some of them blurring the lines between uh, populist for electoral purposes versus being a straight-up dictator. Uh, And many of these have found value in the ability to say exactly what you want to say and only address the questions that you want to address. So the internet, obviously, as is known, creates opportunities to become radicalized. And in fact, some of the conversations that you've had here talk about radicalization of populations outside of the United States. um, And that kind of radicalization, which was once thought is getting aimed at only a certain kind of demographic is now increasingly seen around the world. Uh, The internet creates echo chambers where people can find ideas that are supported by others and um, like-minded individuals. And uh, in turn, once you have these echo chambers, they accelerate that process of radicalization. Now, radicalization in the studies on radicalization, actually, a specific study in the Netherlands also showed that internet allows radicalization to occur without physical contact. So you're purely engaging online and you can get more and more radicalized. And when I say radicalized, I don't just mean radicalized in the pure form of one or another extreme uh, political ideology, but radicalized in whatever is your ideology going deeper into that echo chamber. And of course, uh, the internet also creates opportunities for various forms of self-radicalization, where you slowly uh, start picking into certain kinds of uh, of information and then start following those deeper and deeper. Now, the difference between Narendra Modi and Uh, Donald Trump is that Narendra Modi had a very, very measured form of social media output in that he started much before most major Indian politicians. And he started on the back of a larger movement in the Indian political right wing, which was um, driven by early adoption of middle and upper middle class Indians who were on social media, who tend to be uh, more likely to vote for uh, the Hindu right wing uh, parties in India, which Narendra Modi is, is from. And Narendra Modi actually started with Orkut. And and when he started with Orkut, it, it was uh, a, a third-person page, so it was like fans of Narendra Modi kind of thing. But uh, very early in his own branding, he realized that 
uh, or whatever his team realized that uh, I- instead of uh, things being third person, he would start speaking first person directly to his audience. And that really, really made a difference, which we've done some work on showing how once he started speaking as though you're hearing directly from the person, that created a certain kind of engagement that did not exist before. And that's an important way in which a politician appears to be talking directly one-on-one with their audience. And that's the way the person perceives it versus the notion of somebody standing in front of a large audience and and, and speaking into them. Uh, So what uh, Modi was able to do was capitalize on this fairly significant population of uh, upper class, upper caste uh, Hindus who were online and had a ready base for when he uh, when he came online. And early in his his during his first election, Narendra Modi was uh, beating off a reputation which had followed him from his earlier career as the chief minister of a state in India, and that, that, that's sort of equivalent to uh, being a governor in the United States, uh, where there were riots and he was largely implicated in the riots. The uh, head of the party at the time was seen as not being very favorable towards Narendra Modi, that uh, who at that time the head of the party uh, or the titular head of the party was the prime minister and uh, as a result narendra modi started with this disadvantage where he needed not to prove his populist or extreme right wing credentials but rather to prove the opposite which is that no i'm not that uh, hardliner uh, guy but i am somebody who has a vision for all indians who's a moderate who's a um, economic thinker modernist etc cetera, etc cetera. so narendra modi's actually online uh, behavior was very measured and and i keep getting asked this question like can you compare uh, trump and modi and early in the days of uh, trump uh, during his his election uh, victory, um, I always felt that Narendra Modi was much closer to Hillary Clinton in terms of how measured what he said was on social media than Trump. Now, Modi did use certain kinds of uh, populist um, uh, dog whistling and innuendo, but never the kind of open insult style that uh, Donald Trump used. Now, The importance there is that once Narendra Modi has come to power and you're not an outsider to politics anymore, then you, well, in most cases, you continue to have a much more statesmanly um, online persona. This is, of course, Donald Trump's great contribution to the to the world of uh, things like conspiracy theory and extreme speech, where uh, traditionally conspiracy theories or extreme speech tend to come from people who are outside government, right? So you try to explain what happened by saying, well, you know, uh, we lost. Clearly, there must be a conspiracy. Whereas Donald Trump uh, not only maintained but upped the conspiracy theory thing while he was in power. And that, I think, is probably one of the most important things about what is happening with social media and politics right now, which is populists in power can continue to play the role of an outsider even though they are currently what represents the government. So you constantly create this invisible political enemy that they are fighting, that they're up against. And of course, Rodrigo Duterte 
Duterte does this, Bolsonaro does this, and by doing that, you your pop your your contribution to the populist speech is the fact that you are always defending your loyal from this invisible enemy. And in this way, actually, Trump has been really important, not only um, in the last few weeks where things went really uh, aggressive, but even before that, as a consistent theme of convincing a subset of people that they were being, that they were constantly under attack. And and that's very interesting what you all pull out. Uh because, I mean, sometimes, like, you know, when we're looking at Donald Trump's tweets or some of these other political tweets, especially some of the more extreme ones, we often just sort of think that, okay, like, he's just sort of randomly tweeting this. But, I mean, from prior conversations with you, I don't think that's a belief you hold, right? That these tweets are just sent out randomly. I mean, like, as what you said, these tweets seem to be very orchestrated to a way that there's a goal in each of these tweets. Is that what you think applies to Donald Trump as well? I don't know. It's hard to guess with Donald Trump because he clearly did things um, in the past tense, which were at times completely befuddling is that you could say, well, I don't know how planned this could be, like uh, like calling his uh, top uh, African-American staffer um, a dog. I mean, you, you can't, there is some level at which you say, okay, this has definitely gone beyond uh, the, the limits of decency by such a distance that um, nobody could think that this is plain speaking. You could just avoid talking about that or or say it in a different way. Uh, so Donald Trump truly is enigmatic in that sense where um, I, I think most commentators feel that even if uh, there is a significant amount of pre-planning in the way that he uh, presents himself, there is still a certain amount of randomness in being unable to expect what's going on. We just look at the week that has uh, that following Trump's being banned from Twitter. I mean, the amount of coverage of his tweets falling from social media, and of course, you know, there's there's uh, other work out there which is shown as the amount of um, misinformation itself fell, but just the amount of coverage of Donald Trump that fell as a result of his social media no longer being there tells you that uh, on one hand, this person's social media account is must be very well planned because of the n- amount of airtime it's getting for him on mainstream media. But nonetheless, he balances that out by saying really far out stuff, uh, which which even people who have come to expect something different from Donald Trump are are still stunned by. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean. You mentioned, like, you know, the activity that's fallen in the week following his ban. Uh, one statistic I saw recently on the news was that around maybe perhaps 70% of, I guess, fake news conversation around, I think, uh, the election uh, had just basically disappeared after Donald Trump was banned from Twitter. Like, it, the activity just went down. And I mean, that's what it makes me wonder when we're talking about really fake news, especially like fake news, both around the election, fake news around COVID and so on. We often wonder how that fake news has spread so quickly and easily. Uh, from that statistic, are we to believe that like the leader, you know, like a very prominent politician like Donald Trump or some other leader 
are they the biggest drivers of fake news? If you don't have those leaders driving that fake news, is it really as viral? Is it really as viral as it used to be? So that's a that's a very interesting point because there isn't uh, yes so the 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 fake news that makes it to studies to academia etc tends to be the big ticket fake news the stuff that actually goes viral uh, but there is a a really big and underlying uh, layer of fake news uh, which is things which are either on encrypted platforms and and the oxford internet institute has done interesting work on on fake news in encrypted platforms uh, but is reactive fake news as well so if you are from a community which sees itself constantly embattled by fake news if that community is something definable by say ethnicity or what have you uh, then then there might be a subset, and there is a subset of fake news that goes around in that community, which is part of its coping mechanism. Now, that coping mechanism is something which, in the in the in the history of of uh, well, misinformation, fake news, rumor, what we want to call it, has shown that populations which are embattled constantly look for conspiracy theories as making sense of their current condition. So, 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 so uh, to to track back here for a second into how misinformation is traditionally uh, quantified, there's there's three types of well, not misinformation per se, but conspiracy theories. There are three kinds of ways of thinking about conspiracy theory. One is epistemic, so making sense of one's environment and um, what is going right or wrong with one's environment. The second is existential, which is uh, the sense of control in one's environment, the sense of feeling safe in one's environment. And the last is uh, social, which is to maintain a kind of positive image of the self and the social group. In um, as, as a, So conspiracy uh, theories, which help that form of um, of of understanding of oneself. And if you think about the kinds of misinformation that have been much more prevalent of late, a lot of it tends to end up in the social, which has to do with maintaining a positive image of oneself and one social group, especially in the States. Okay. But in when we look at uh, places like India, there's also a certain kind of existential misinformation, which is uh, or conspiracy theories, which uh, go around because of the amount of uncertainty that people feel in the post-COVID world. A great example of something in that space is um, study that we did looking at the misinformation in India that followed right after uh, the coronavirus lockdown started happening. So this was around March, lockdown started happening. And there was this one incident in the, in the capital of India, New Delhi, in which this uh, group of Islamic scholars came together from all over the world and they had this event and uh, these these guys were coming from various parts of the world and and there was a significant um, infection uh, rate at that event now uh, the infection from that event then spurred this new cycle around around muslims trying to spread coronavirus in India as a way of, uh, as, as a continuation of the earlier misinformation, which had actually political roots in 
crafting Muslims as a national enemy because of uh, citizenship law and so on and so forth, so things that preceded that. My point is that when you have a certain kind of misinformation or conspiracy theory which already demonizes one population, when a new thing happens, you'll try to come up with a way of going back to that population as the villain of this as well. And of course, political theory is, is completely rife with examples of this where you can come up with one population which is going to get blamed for whatever goes wrong in a certain uh, 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 socio-political realm. And uh, social media has just made this so much easier. And political leaders, when they weigh in on things like this, especially if they weigh in through innuendo, which, 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 uh, which even when Donald Trump did not uh, explicitly go after specific communities when he would say things that uh, that uh, that would appear to demonize certain certain populations it has a huge effect and so uh, political leaders you rightly point out are specifically important um, and and therefore of course it it raises the questions of whether political leaders who do not behave in line with these norms, what do you do with them? And of course, that is what we see in the panning of Donald Trump on a number of social media outlets. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a critical point. And I think one of the most concerning implications of social media is how, uh, as, you, as you said, that uh, it can lead to actions and who is better at driving populations to act than you know the leading politicians uh, in particular countries. And so, uh, Dr. Paul, how can these social media companies effectively combat fake news is it is it actually possible right i mean we've seen this this reckoning within the technology community about uh, kind of dealing with misinformation and fake news we've seen bans um whether temporary or permanent but is is that really all that should be done in order to combat this I mean, this is a great great question and of course you know in the uh the last two weeks you've asked this question to a ton of people much smarter than me, and the answer is a shoulder shrug. Uh, the important point is that from a situation of global power exceptionalism where uh, one uh, nation state and its set of values uh, were coming to define what was considered normatively acceptable or not for other nation states, like, let's say, you know, liberal democracy in the Cold War as being a set of values that uh, American exceptionalism put out, that mantle is being taken by tech companies, which is which is bizarre because they are now uh, such strong um, international carriers of certain values, and there is no question that the values that come from their home nations, wherever they are based, are going to have that effect of um, spreading those, attempting to spread those values in other countries. It's possible, but at the same time, uh, what you saw happen with Trump and, um, and not 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 just Trump, but like uh, several tens of thousands accounts getting banned uh, in the in the states. Uh, that kind of thing um, has not happened in a lot of other places. And, uh, you know, you'll keep seeing India come up over and over again, because it is one of those places where the social media companies are going to have its biggest 
battle. So if you're looking at a country which has, uh, say, 300 million users of your technology and where a very strong government is somehow a critical partner for you to continue to operate in that country, how far are you willing to go to work against the the desires of of that government now in the us obviously there's been a big nudge nudge wink wink over well you know trump has been kicked off twitter as it turns out when his fate was sealed now would you do that when uh, the individual in case is a hugely popular populist and is systematically going after a subset of people who are a weak minority, but uh, this individual leader decides to go after them. Uh, I would be very surprised if I saw uh, tech companies take that kind of a principled stand when their boards are going to say, well, no, this is not, this is going to lose us money. Why would we do this? And so this question really brings to fore is the financial interests of a certain company is that a good metric through which we should think of the moral normative ways in which we see political behavior and and you know the 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 most recent case you you may have uh, heard of this already is what is happening in Uganda with uh, the internet shutdowns and if you look at uh, statista has this uh, report that it puts out on 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 social media and, and uh, um worldwide and i was looking at the numbers on the number of countries in which uh, uh in which the population thinks it's okay to shut down internet in case of uh, certain situations. And India, and in, in India, that numbers upwards of, it's over 85% of the people who agree that temporarily cutting off social media is acceptable for the spread of false information, right? And in the US, that number is is somewhere in the range of 65%, okay? What's interesting is in the US, if you ask the same question of if the decision was made by government, that number falls 20%. So which means that the American population is feels better about internet shutdowns being affected by uh, technology companies and it trusts them more than it trusts the government. And that, to me, is just absolutely stunning. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just crazy. And I mean, I mean, you mentioned obviously the uh, the Trump ban from Twitter. And I mean, when I first heard that news, I sort of thought of this as more of a Pandora's box, but sort of an oxymoronic Pandora's box with the the presence of uh, Twitter accounts like the Chinese embassy in the United States with the stuff about the Uyghurs, uh, the Ayatollah. Uh, and just like a range of other politicians. And I think specifically uh, of Sri Lanka and some of those Twitter accounts there that are clearly spreading uh, fake news, clearly spreading uh, hate speech, but there is no action uh, taken against it. But I mean, I think another thing that I was sort of curious to hear your take on is like, which sort of draws on the point about the social media company's financial interests are we saw... Twitter really, and like, you know, social media and 
all of this fake news spread really contribute to the insurrection we saw at the Capitol building. But again, 10 years ago, we sort of saw the Arab Spring, the democracy protests in Tahir Square, really be perhaps driven and partially organized on social media companies. And does how how is that going to work in the future, right? Like, like, is this a Pandora's box that's opening, essentially? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there would be, there, there's, of course, differences between the various cases and the way they pan out. Uh, some of those uh, demonstrations, which were against uh, authoritarian uh, governments, are harder to compare against other kinds of situations where, well, the, the U.S. situation, which was against a certification of a certain election result and and by the way of that there are very good examples as well the iranian example of 2009 is a, is a good one where one set of people were seen as uh, well we reject this election result and we are going to protest against it and twitter was a means of them to protest against it and the government of course put it down with with uh, great force and now in the u.s uh, if you were to ask one party, if you were to ask Ahmadinejad, well, um, what happened here? He might very well sound like Trump at that point. He says, well, you know, I had won this election fair and square. And of course, you know, he stayed in there after that. Uh, and uh, these people are a bunch of people trying to steal my election here. Okay. And because their position is somehow normatively better aligned with us in the liberal democratic uh, sphere, we might think of that as a protest versus that same thing might be called an insurrection in the U.S. in, well, and I, and I can... We know for a fact that uh, that the language of who calls it a protest versus an inter- insurrection, even in the in the states right now, is dramatically different. That kind of a difference is increasingly going to happen over and over again as more and more elections get um, get contested. And especially if one or another side, which is trying to challenge results of elections does not feel that it has the same access to the mainstream media. Uh, this is a really important point. And of course, the Ugandan case is, is, is a classic case of why this kind of thing happens. And the first thing the government does is it shuts down internet and shuts down social media. But even if you look at cases such as the Kenyan 2017 election, in which there was basically rioting on the streets, and eventually the way that the situation would settle down was was through a brokered uh, peace deal between the two main actors. If the two had decided to go after each other in social media for a prolonged period of time, that would have been catastrophic for Kenyan society, not just for the incident itself and for the time that followed. So, yes, your question is right, that there is a very important normative question here between can we call something an insurrection when it happens in D.C., but call the same thing a protest when it happens in Tehran? Uh, But also what it goes back to your earlier question, that irrespective of that, 
what role do individual leaders have in a situation where they are highly able to move, to fan the fire or to calm things down when they're in a situation like that. Now, think about what happened in the National Guard, um, uh, the National Guard scenario, which which right followed that uh, they, there was this delay. And um, I, I can't remember the name of uh, the individual, but uh, this person was a uh, was uh, I, I believe a chief of staff to Colin Powell at some point, and he was on the radio talking about um, why some of those delays might have happened in sending uh, uh, National Guard out. And his point was a very important one, which is that it's not clear how many people that you would send out have already been radicalized themselves and therefore cannot be relied upon to behave in a certain way once they are at that point of dealing with that protest. Okay, And one of the things which has, in my opinion, received a lot less coverage than I would have expected it, and maybe this is my echo chamber, is that a number of individuals' social media accounts was looked at as a way of thinking about whether or not they should be part of the um the 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 process of keeping dc safe now this to me is 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 un, is 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 a new uh space in thinking about defense where you are now looking at the social media feeds of your policemen your military to think about whether they may fall on one or another side of a protest situation that goes down in a major capital and that is really really scary definitely really scary and you know a lot of these points we sort of raise up uh raise the question of the nature of these social media companies the question of whether they are american companies or whether they are global companies and i know ryan has a question right after this but i just wanted to get your thoughts on that like are these companies American or are they now global? Who, who are they even emboldened to? I know we talked a bit about the financial interests and the partner governments, but at their core, I mean, what values uh, are they really trying to espouse? American values or global values or what? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the practical way in which I would think about it is that when you are up against that company and you are based in Russia or Pakistan or India, wherever it is, then they're an American company, right? Because, oh, well, you know, this is these uh, American company with their American values. They're trying to influence our democracy in, in negative ways. So, so really the question is, is the real issue whether the company in and of itself is global or does it matter in the eyes of the beholder, is the company global or American at a certain given point? Because if we are talking about situations in which there's a high degree of polarization, the company itself is not safe from that polarization. So the company, it's the Facebook case of in India where uh, the head of Indian government relations and Facebook had to resign because of her closeness to the Indian government 
is a very interesting case in this point where uh, Facebook would appear to be a global company, but was clearly hand in glove with uh, certain political interests in India. Uh, and arguably that helped the company in certain ways to uh, increase its foot- footprint in India. So was Facebook at that point behaving like a global company or an American company, it was behaving like a company which answered to its board. And that, to me, is the really important point that we keep forgetting, is that there is this notion that for some reason technology companies have a higher moral compass in some ways. No, for the most part, they're often companies which are just thinking about what is their best financial decision and whether that financial decision needs to be tempered by the way that people will react to it because that may in turn impact how uh, engaged people will be with them in the future. So Twitter clearly lost a significant amount of its um, if its value right after the uh, Right after the banning of of uh, of Trump, uh, but uh, is does that mean that in time it will continue to make such such steps? Well, we don't know. We'll have to think about that when we get to that uh, that point. And it says a lot to me, like I said before, that they did this right when Trump was getting out of power. Yeah, I mean, you and Andre just hit on such a a critical point. Uh, for the reasons you guys outlined, but also because these these social media companies wield so much power and influence uh, in all aspects of life, uh, politics just being one of them. And so, uh, Dr. Paul, I want to ask about the future of social media and politics, where you where you see it going, uh, particularly given the presence and prevalence of of encrypted platforms such as Telegram and Signal. Yeah. So I absolutely think that this is going to get much more intense, and I think that. The uh, one thing that we haven't talked about is what the parlor uh, situation with companies refusing to host it is going to do to the rest of the world. Because what happens when that the argument against uh, social media companies playing a referee in these uh, scenarios is that uh, well, you know, it's 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 a quasi uh, free speech argument where you say well everybody should have equal access to this but actually the uh, the sub argument of that is that as long as people are talking about these things publicly well you can keep track of what they're talking about now i i don't necessarily buy that if there is like i said if there is several situations in our history where we know that a leader who is behaving in a particularly incendiary way can make things a lot worse in a given moment. And to avoid those kinds of catastrophes, we might need to think about how we can pull certain plugs. But now coming back to Ryan's question is that once politicians know that that kind of plug exists, what are they going to do to work their way around it? So are the politicians of the world going to think to themselves, this just happened with Donald Trump. What is my backup policy here? Should I be getting on TikTok because TikTok is not going to do this? We don't know that, and maybe they will. And I think that it might very well be in every politician's self-interest, purely self-interest from the perspective of them continuing to be in power, to think about what their political lives would be like if their loudspeakers were taken away from them. 
Okay, and uh, the as far as the social media companies are com- concerned, yes, there is one part of them where they don't want to be. They, they so so you know they they are obviously protected from uh, certain kinds of consequences. You know, if you think about uh, section. 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It's it's like saying that, okay, if you're a bookseller, you don't need to have read every book that you're selling to sell that book. And therefore, you're not responsible for what is being said when it is on your platform. But but social media companies are now dealing with this tussle between are they platforms, are they publishers? Okay, And if they are publishers, then they are much more liable for stuff. And increasingly, some of the things that they're doing in terms of uh, of uh, moderating content makes them look more and more like publishers. So if they are publishers, um, there might be legal liability. And of course, always keep in mind that once you are in that space of being a global company, then it doesn't matter that Section 230 uh, protects you in the U.S. It matters that in other countries, uh, you could get um, you could get uh, into legal trouble for a range of things. And in many of those countries, uh, while the company might get away scot-free, the individual who is the the CEO of that company for that country might very well end up in jail. And this, of course, has happened several times where the country head of a certain platform finds uh, themselves in legal trouble because instead of going after the company, they decide that, okay, we'll go after you is because we can uh, make an example out of you. And so platforms are not just worried about the financial consequences, but are also worried about how they end up looking when they do these kinds of censorships and uh, censorship. And at the same time, the um, and by the way, when I when I say censorship, I I know the politics of that word because uh, that itself is seen as a negative value when you use it in those terms. And at the same time, the politicians are equally thinking about. Well, we really like social media because we get to say what we want to. We get to not talk about what we don't want to talk about. And we are getting covered in the mainstream media. Nonetheless, we get to do things in short form. We get to do things in long form. But here is our friend from the United States, Mr. Trump. And what do we do to prepare for when that outcome comes to us? Certainly. And uh, on that note, I mean, Section 230 is going to be at the forefront of many, I think, political discussions in the in the weeks and months to come, especially as I think the Republican Party has uh, vowed some action on it, given the recent uh, social media uh, bans and stuff. But uh, that's all the more reason for another episode on this. So, Dr. Paul, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. I really appreciate it uh, having uh, you formally as my former research advisor. So uh, this is going to be great. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, folks. And I uh, wish you luck in the years and months and years to come.